0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everybody. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. If you would like to download a free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Luke or just click on one of the pictures on my website that says Audible. Now, let's get started with this episode. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Luke's English Podcast. How are you? Um, I hope that you're fine. I hope all's well. Um, Here is part five in this series, which I'm doing about my California road trip. And we continue the trip in this episode in which I'm hoping to talk about these things, okay? So I'm going to talk about the Church of Scientology, uh, Yosemite National Park, and our slightly dramatic adventure there, and some more British and American English. And if time, I'll talk to you about San Francisco where, among other things, I met and interviewed AJ Hoag, who you might know from the internet, because he's quite well-known on the internet, and he's got a learning English system, which is called Effortless English. I think that I won't get to AJ Hoag in this episode. That's probably going to be in the next one, which I also imagine will be the last uh, in this series of California road trip uh, episodes. So, let's get started. Okay, I should say as well that while I'm recording this, uh, I'm also doing a live stream on Periscope, and I've got some people joining me here on Periscope. And um, so, yeah, live stream. So this is the first time that I've ever done this. Um, and uh, someone's already asking me, is this Periscope broadcast brought to us by Audible? Yeah, if you like. Yeah, why not? In fact, uh, yeah, well, uh, you could say so. Yes, the, the uh, maybe the Periscope is brought to you by Audible. I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a bit. Now you might be thinking, if you're listening to this podcast, you might be thinking, "Oh, wait a minute! I wish I'd known about that. I wish I'd known. If I had known that you were going to do um, a live broadcast on Periscope while you were recording this, then I would have watched it." Which, if, if to be honest, if you if you are thinking that, then well done, because that is quite a complex sentence that involves a number of complicated conditional uh, uh, structures. Um, if I had known that you were going to record an episode of the podcast using Periscope at the same time, then I would have decided to listen to it. Don't worry about the complexities of third conditionals at this point. But anyway, um, I'm planning to upload the video of the Periscope onto the page for this episode. If my phone can handle it, depending on the size of the file, but hopefully you'll be able to see this again by watching it on youtube all right Um, now then now so we continue the road trip story and um so in the previous episodes i talked to you about the time i spent in los angeles and stuff so at this point um 11th of august i think it was the 11th of august we decided to well we prepared to drive uh from los angeles to to yosemite national park and we went to uh cvs which is like this huge um uh, and we stocked up on water and other supplies because it's quite a long journey. So we, you know, we thought we'd need to get lots of supplies and things. Uh, we programmed the satnav. Uh, that's the satnav. That's the uh, GPS satellite navigation system. We programmed the satnav to take us a, a, on a route um, on the western side of the Sierra Nevada um, via Bakersfield and Fresno, and then up. I think it's Highway 41 into Yosemite, which is a really nice drive. Um, and in Yosemite National Park, we'd managed to book uh, a spot in a camping ground. And at that at that point, we were both really looking forward to being in the fresh air and in the mountains. But before we left for um, Yosemite, we decided to stop and have a big uh, a big breakfast in a in a recommended cafe where they do awesome pancakes with whipped cream, maple syrup, and free re- refills of coffee. You know, those really big, delicious American-style pancakes, and you cover loads of... And I mean, they're quite unhealthy in the first place, these pancakes, but it seems to be customary to add all sorts of other unhealthy ingredients on the top, like you add maple syrup and whipped cream and things like that. Uh, admittedly, the pancakes that I did have in this cafe also had lots of fresh fruit like cut strawberries and bananas and things on the top which obviously made it okay but there was still tons of sugar and and stuff in there um but i love those pancakes they're so delicious so we stopped we the plan was to stop off in this cafe and we parked the car and walked up the street to get to the cafe and then suddenly we came across this huge imposing building a massive uh, at the end of the street, this massive, imposing-looking building, and it was um, it was bright blue. Uh, massive and weirdly painted bright blue. Uh, what was it? Well, this was the headquarters of the Church of Scientology. Um, and so at this point in the episode, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Scientology, which I consider to be a fascinating, and here's that word again, mysterious aspect of California life. Um, now, what is the Church of Scientology? I imagine that some of you know about the Church of Scientology already. Um, uh, let me let me talk to you a little bit about it. In fact, first of all, what I'm going to do now is play a recording that I made um, on my little audio recorder at that moment. So we would parked the car and um, I switched on the audio recorder and started talking about what I could see. So I'm going to play that recording to you right now. Hello there. Now um, it's I think day three or day four. We are planning to leave Los Angeles today in order to drive up to Yosemite National Park, and we're just sort of on our way out of LA. We decided to stop off at a a recommended cafe, um, and so we just parked the car in a little side street, and we just uh, just a few moments ago we started walking up towards this cafe, and at the end of the road. There's this weird, huge blue building, massive, very imposing blue building. And guess what it is? Well, it's the headquarters of the Church of Scientology. It's a massive building. It's kind of like this, well, I don't know how to describe it, really. It's very tall, probably about 10 stories high, something like that. And at the top, there's a huge uh, sign that says Scientology in huge letters, and it's all painted uh, bright blue. Very weird looking and very imposing. And as, as we walked closer towards it, we noticed that there were lots of people walking around it, all dressed exactly the same in a sort of uniform. And these are the people who work in the Church of Scientology. Um, it's, really, it's really fascinating. I feel a bit self-conscious talking into the microphone like this, walking along the street. Also, there are sort of security guards on bicycles riding around the building. Um, I don't know how they feel about people um, doing filming or recording here. Anyway, I'll talk again in a minute. I'm hoping to interview someone. Okay, so what is the Church of Scientology? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. It's a religion. Uh, and quite a controversial one. Some people call it a cult. Some of its members are famous celebrities, like Tom Cruise and John Travolta. Apparently, the church has a lot of influence in Hollywood, and lots of people think it's really weird and secretive. There are even suggestions uh, that the church has been involved in criminal activity, like threats, assault, and even uh, more serious things than that. Um, those are just allegations and suggestions. Again, um, as I said, these are just allegations, but it's pretty mysterious and fascinating, like something from some kind of weird mystery novel or something. I recently saw a very interesting documentary about Scientology called Going Clear, in which lots of, lots of ex-members of the church, and these are people who decided to leave for one reason or another, lots of ex-members of the church, um, uh explain what it's really like what the church is really like and they don't st- they don't say very positive things. Um, In fact, the documentary seems to suggest that Scientology is a power-hungry cult which takes money from its members and threatens them with retribution if they try to leave. There are also suggestions that the church committed crimes like burglary, theft and intimidation in order to avoid having to pay a huge tax bill to the US government. Bold claims indeed, so what is really going on inside this weird blue building? So here's a brief history of Scientology. Okay, I'm going to give you a brief history of, of Scientology. And this time, I'm going to paraphrase a summary of Scientology that I found uh, on the Four Dummies website. Uh, so Four Dummies is a series of books that help to explain various complex subjects in simple terms. You might know the series already because they have uh, distinctive yellow covers, Um, So, for dummies, for example, you get, um, you know, English History for Dummies. Dummies means stupid people. The idea is that they kind of explain complicated subjects in simple ways so that even dummies or idiots can understand them. So, of course, I love the series. Um, So... uh, um it's a really good series they have books on almost every subject. For example, a quick look at the the for dummies series on Audible. Um if I have a quick look at that, I'll give you an example of some of the titles that you can find. If I just go onto audible.com uh for dummies, I just search for it and we have things like Spanish for Dummies, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Dummies, Freemasons for Dummies, Investing for Dummies, home buying for dummies, Catholicism for dummies, Irish history for dummies, uh, French for dummies, I think I need to get that one, um, small businesses for dummies, um, and so on. In, um, what else? British history for dummies, um, and so on. Okay, so you've got all these different versions. Um, anyway, so, um, for dummies also have a website with clear and fairly brief summaries of different subjects. So, Let's check out um, the summary for Scientology. Um, You can check the link on the page for this episode. Um, So what I'm going to say is based on information in that summary, but but also what I learned from the Scientology pamphlets that I've read, and also what I learned from several documentaries that I've seen. Okay, so the Church of Scientology was set up in 1953 by a writer called L. Ron Hubbard, Now, Hubbard was already fairly successful at the time as a writer of both science fiction stories and then self-help books. And his most successful self-help book explored the relationship between body and mind, and he called it Dianetics. Uh, The Dianetics book became the basis um, of the religion that he then set up, which he called Scientology. Now, some critics say that, that Dianetics is just quackery quackery means not proper science, basically, kind of fake science or not proper, not proper science because it's not uh, subject to the proper levels of testing and quality standards that you expect from genuine science or psychiatry, okay? So this is what critics say about Dianetics, um, that it's just quackery and that he only set it up Scientology as a religion because it was a tax dodge, just a way to avoid having to pay lots of tax. These are. This is what the critics say. In the USA, religions don't have to pay tax, you see. So Hubbard is criticised for having a cynical reason for making his religion in the first place so that he could make money, or worse, maybe, that he was just power hungry. Whatever the reason, Scientology was set up as a religion in the USA. Um, now, L. Ron Hubbard, as the creator of Scientology, is loved by the Scientologists, of course, but he's viewed with a lot more suspicion by many non-members of the church. For example, the French government, who considered him to be a fraudster and tried to convict him of customs violations in the 1970s. Um, Britain, Greece, Spain, Portugal and Venezuela all closed their ports to... um, to L. Ron Hubbard's fleet of boats in the 1970s. At one point, a court in Australia revoked the church's status as a religion. Um, that was a quote, by the way, that there I just read from Wikipedia. Uh, these are all reasons why he went into hiding in the 1970s. And to go into hiding means to leave the place where you live and go to a place where nobody can find you. So, he was the leader, of this, you know, even during these periods when he disappeared and went into hiding, he was the leader of the, um, of the church um, right up until he died in 1986. So what do Scientologists actually do? Well, you can walk into a Scientology centre in many cities in the world now and have a counselling session. In fact, you might be invited in for one. When I used to live in London, I used to walk past the Scientology Centre in central London. I think it was on the Tottenham Court Road. And they would sometimes ask me if I wanted a stress test. Um, And I always said no, because I felt that that was just a way for them to get me into the centre. And um, I imagined it would be a bit like this. Like, um, hi, how are you feeling a bit stressed out today? Would you like a free stress test? And then you kind of go, yeah, all right. And then you go in and they check you out and they tell you that you're feeling very stressed and that stress is very harmful and that, in fact, they have all the solutions to how to combat stress and to live a more effective life. And of course, it's all the principles of Scientology. And they say, here's a leaflet and here's a DVD. Would you like to sign up for a course? And if you're kind of convinced by the kind of sales pitch that they've given you there and then, And you're convinced by the fact that you do have high levels of stress, according to their stress meter, and, uh, you know, you feel more relaxed after them, you know, and maybe you feel, oh my God, I've got high levels of stress, what what do I need to do? And they're right there with all the answers, and it all seems very clear. So that's kind of one of the ways that they might kind of recruit you into the Church of Scientology, for example. Sounds okay, I suppose, doesn't it? I expect that it is helpful for for many people, certainly at the beginning but it, personally it 's just not for me it 's not something that um, uh, i'm i'm interested in um, so a counselling session at the Church of Scientology is uh, is called an audit. And essentially, this is a bit like a psycho- psychotherapy session. So you're invited to share deeply personal things in order to free yourself from emotional burdens. Okay, um, so this is the the audit. You sit down with an auditor and they hook you up to a machine which is called the e-meter. I'll tell you a little bit more about the e-meter in a second. So the counselling session is, is like a, a kind of therapy session... They call it an audit. Um, Almost like a confession to an extent. Um, You're invited to share deeply personal things in order to free yourself from emotional burdens. It does sound like Freudian psychoanalysis a little bit, doesn't it? But in fact, Scientology completely rejects psychoanalysis. And apparently Scientology is the only way okay? During these auditing auditing sessions, you're hooked up to a machine which is called an e-meter. Essentially, you hold on to these metal things which um, somehow measure electromagnetic uh, currents in your hands, okay? Uh, So, you hold on to these metal cylinders during the audit. Um, According to Scientology, the e-meter can measure your thoughts, but... It's not just as simple as thoughts. Apparently, it's related to immortal spirits from space which inhabit our bodies and prevent us from living a healthy and happy life. Okay. Um, so, anyway, auditing allows us to set these sp- spirits free, which makes us feel better. Um, critics say uh, that the uh, e-meter just measures electromagnetic energy in your hands And it's no more revealing about your mind than a crude crude lie detector test. But according to Scientology, if an e-meter is used by a Scientology minister, then it really works. And freeing yourself from levels of emotional burden in these auditing sessions is called going clear. And there are different stages of clarity. In order to achieve those levels of clarity, you need to do more and more audits, share more and more personal problems, and also contribute more and more things to the church. This costs quite a lot of money, of course, as courses of, uh, as, as courses of auditing are not cheap. And all of this goes to the church. And also, all the private and personal things that you've said in auditing sessions, are recorded and kept by the church. Now, they say that these things are confidential, but nevertheless they do keep all of the things that you've said all the deep personal secrets that you've revealed in in your sessions the aim is to free yourself of all your emotional burdens and achieve a state of perfect clarity apparently the church of scientology is very rich as they have purchased some incredible pieces of real estate around the world such as the massive blue building in los angeles it's not very clear exactly how much power that how much power they have some people say that they exert some influence in Hollywood's entertainment industry so what do Scientologists believe well um, Scientologists believe that people are just in fact just receptacles for immortal spirits which came down to earth many years ago the church doesn't like it if these spirits are called aliens it doesn't doesn't like the word aliens because it you know it sounds bad if you say that you believe in aliens, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't sound very sort of reasonable. It sounds a bit mad, let's say. Um, so let's not call them aliens. Apparently, these immortal spirits live within us and they're trapped inside us, and they can only be freed by going through these auditing sessions until eventually you get to the top level of clarity when I guess the 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 aliens, I mean spirits, sorry. Um, are freed, and they go somewhere else. I'm not sure of the details of what exactly happens to these spirits, or if in fact we are the spirits ourselves, or what they look like, or anything like that. I'm not sure. So anyway, there you go. Uh, In the end, that's what the Scientologists believe. Okay, fair enough. I think we're all entitled to our beliefs. So, But what is it that's so controversial about them? Now, uh, I'm now going to read a quote from the page Um, on the Four Dummies website about Scientology. And this bit is written by Scott Barnes. And you can find the link on the page for this episode. Um, And it goes like this. Scientology is one of the most controversial religious movements of our time. Many people reduce their worldview to nothing more than a cult that brainwashes its members and then fleeces them. That's basically like sort of cons them by charging outrageous fees for some auditing classes. Critics Uh, lambast the church for its rejection of established psychiatry, and many people take issue with the church's celebrity centres, which are facilities that are technically open to the public but primarily serve the most famous Scientologists in the arts, sports and government. Think people like Tom Cruise, Isaac Hayes and Nancy Cartwright, for example. Reports from some who have left the Church of Scientology are even more incriminating, and include stories of church members being held for years against their wills at rehabilitation camps for violating certain policies, or sending members to go through the trash of the church's critics and former members to find material to blackmail them into silence. In 1979, several Scientology members were convicted for participating in the largest theft of government documents in the United States history. Scientologists have also been accused of tampering with witnesses in court cases and even murder. In response to these claims, Scientologists state that their religion is genuine and that the movement has been distorted by the press and that they are being persecuted. Um, So, that was a quote from um, uh, Scott Barnes on Scientology for Dummies um, on the For Dummies website. Um, So, among the criticisms of Scientology are these things that's, and these are things that Scientology has been criticised for. Scientology apparently preys upon people who want to make it in Hollywood by suggesting that the church can help them. And then they force them to stay in the church with the suggestion that they can harm their careers due to the extensive connections in the business. Okay. An allegation, not necessarily my point of view, just reporting on other people's criticisms. Um, Uh, Another criticism, they illegally registered an investigation into their accounts by the IRS, that they bully their members and then blackmail high-profile members like Tom Cruise and John Travolta into staying in the church. Remember that the church has recordings of all those extensive and deeply personal auditing sessions. These are all allegations and criticisms, of course, which have been made against the church, not necessarily my thoughts. I haven't decided what I think of them yet, and I'm just curious. Is it possible that all of this sinister stuff is actually going on within these imposing blue buildings that we saw? I wonder. I'd I'd now like to play you a second recording um, that I made on the day that I was there. So let me now play that recording for you on the podcast. So we're in the cafe over the road from the, the headquarters of the Church of Scientology and from here we can kind of observe what's going on and there's loads of people coming out of the building at the moment and they're either dressed in white shirts and black trousers like some sort of weird uniform all of them exactly the same or they're dressed in red short sleeve tops and black trousers and there's loads of them pouring out of the building at this moment and at the same time there are guys on bikes they look like security guards riding around the building It's really fascinating and really weird. I'd love to stop some of these people and talk to them to find out who they are and what's going on. Now, I know the church is a little bit um, sensitive about media coverage uh, because they've had lots of criticism in the media and they're quite a high-profile organisation, let's say. They're, They're registered as a religion here in the States. It's arguable... Whether, they, whether that's their main purpose or not but it's, it's certainly interesting you know the Church of Scientology I'm probably going to talk about them a little bit um, before playing this part of the recording on the podcast um, but they're quite controversial um, and they don't really like being criticised of course So they might be a bit sensitive about people like me doing recordings in front of their main offices. But I'd like to try and talk to some of these people. I imagine that they won't be willing to talk to me. um, They probably are a bit sensitive about that kind of thing. And I doubt that they'll want to make any statements to me, especially if they're low-level members of the organisation. But anyway, I'll see if I can talk to someone. It's going to be a bit weird just going up to them in the street to say hello, can I talk to you? They might they might, find that a bit uncomfortable, but let's see. Okay, so um, at that point, I decided that I would try and talk to someone. Um, and I felt a bit excited and a bit nervous, because I know the church can be a bit touchy about people doing recordings or making documentaries about them, which I suppose is understandable. Um... Anyway, I decided that I wanted to talk to someone. So I went over to some of the people in uniform who were walking around the building. I left the cafe and I walked over the road and I tried to talk to one of the people outside the building. And I spoke to a woman who was actually very nice and well, let's say normal. I mean, of course. Uh, I told her I was making a holiday diary and that I'd just come across the building and I wanted to interview someone about it. And she took me into the building and I spoke to someone in reception. And then I made a recording afterwards. So I actually went into the building. Um, I I walked around the building with her. We made a bit of small talk and I tried to sort of, you know... um, play it down a bit. I didn't want to go in and say, I'm making a uh, an investigative documentary about the Church of Scientology, uh, and I want to ask someone some very tough and challenging critical questions, because obviously that wouldn't get me anywhere. Instead, I, was, I said, I'm just making a holiday diary, which is true, because it is a holiday diary, um, and I'm just really curious about this building, and I was just wondering if there was someone who could answer some questions for me. And she took me around, and we I went into reception, and then uh, then I made another recording afterwards when I came out. And I'm now going to play that recording to you. So here we go. So I just went into the building in order to ask someone to, inter- uh, to talk to me. But uh, apparently they don't allow uh, this kind of interview to happen unless I get uh, permission from someone higher up in the organization beforehand. So I thought, well, I don't have time. Because we've got lots of things to do today, so I'm not going to go through all of the official channels to try and get an interview. Um, But it was quite, it almost sort of scary going in. I thought, oh my god, they're going to brainwash me, and I'm going to be kept here forever. But um, no, I just went in, spoke to a nice girl at reception, who told me that I couldn't have an interview. She gave me a DVD, Scientology, an overview a presentation from the Church of Scientology and a kind of uh, little leaflet pack thing, which I'm going to read later on. Um, So that's that's that, but I'm now sort of deep in the heart of Scientology land. All the buildings around are all painted blue and they're all different offices for different parts of the uh, organisation. I'm now walking past the juice bar from one of the buildings and there are some members of staff sitting there looking at me. As I walk past, there's a huge building on the left which is called Advanced Organization Los Angeles. Advanced Organization. I suppose that is the building that deals with the advanced levels of this organization. I'll talk to you more about Scientology in a bit because it's pretty fascinating and there are some quite interesting documentaries about this organization. Um, I'll talk to you more about it so you get the whole picture. Some people, sometimes I say that Luke's English Podcast is a cult. Of course, it's not really. Uh, But I think this is a real one that I'm walking around now. And uh, it's very interesting to actually see it with my own eyes. I mean, the building is huge and so imposing. I'm going to take a photo of it here so you can see what it's like. Again, I hope I don't get stopped or anything but there are various people dressed in sort of a uniform working on it sweeping the floor outside just like any organisation really but with a slightly sinister feeling to it ok taking my photograph it's time to leave before that security guard on a bike comes to talk to me um, but even if he did talk to me I'd probably record him or something um, anyway time to get back onto the road because we've got lots of driving to do today that's been my little Scientology report not a total success because I didn't manage to speak to anyone um, but there it is I, I expect I'll talk to you more about this church um, in post-production or later on uh, on this trip so you you understand really why I find it so fascinating but that's it. This is Luke from Luke's English Podcast signing out. Um so, there you go. That the woman I spoke to seemed pretty happy and seemed very proud to be working at the organization and the place certainly looked very smart and clean. And many members of the church say that it has helped them a lot. But what about all those allegations? What about the documentaries and stuff? Tell me what you think, everyone. Okay? What do you think? Is the church a cult or is it a proper religion in your mind? Is it a force for good or is it a not a force for good? Is there a church of Scientology in your country where do you, where you come from? Tell me what you think about the church of Scientology, okay? I'd like to know your views. As ever, you can leave your comments on the page for this episode of the podcast. This is episode 292. Just go down to the comments section right at the bottom of the page. Just type type a little comment. I'd like to know what you think. Okay. I've got a comment here on Periscope because I'm Periscoping this while I'm doing it. And someone just said, it's just a profitable company really. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. Uh, But they're they're not listed as a company, are they? They're listed as a religion. So it's not really, not exactly operating like a company. They don't, they're not um, subject to the same level of check, checks that companies are, Mm, it's interesting. And someone, another person is saying, yes, there's there's something very shady about them. Yeah, there is something a bit shady about the, the church. Um, anyway, let's move on, shall we, everyone? Let's move on. I'm going to tell you about the next place that we went to on the California road trip. And the next place was Yosemite National Park. Now, um, many of you may have been there. You might have seen it. In fact, you might have Apple Macintosh computers that have a um, Yosemite operating system, and if you've got the uh, Yosemite operating system on your Mac, then you've probably seen the desktop wallpaper images of Yosemite National Park. That's Yosemite, okay? It's an incredibly stunning place, and it's um, also, you know, uh, an operating system on Apple Mac computers. So, I actually went into the I went to Yosemite, which was like going into my Mac. It was actually like climbing into the operating system of my Mac. Um, So anyway, Yosemite, it's a huge national park and probably one of the most stunning parks in the world. Um, Most of the tourism there is centred on Yosemite Valley, which is full of meadows, a river and pine trees and some accommodation and camping grounds. Around the valley, you have some incredible granite rock formations, including stunning mountains. Uh, And there are granite rock faces like El Capitan, the Half Dome, Sentinel Dome, and so on. Also, some of the highest waterfalls in the world. Um, The whole thing combines to be a stunning place to spend some time camping, cycling, hiking, or rock climbing. And it's visited by about 5 million people per year. Uh, there are a few roads that go around the central part of the park surrounding the valley. 95% of the park is wilderness, and hardly any people go there except experienced hikers. So that's the other 95%. Most people spend time in the in the valley, which is about 5% of the, the whole park. Okay, uh, The other 95% is mainly wilderness, and hardly any people go there except experienced hikers, climbers, and campers. You might know Yosemite, as I just mentioned. Uh, from the Apple Mac operating system. Um, at the time I'm recording this podcast, I think the most recent OS for Mac is Yosemite, but I believe that uh, the next one is going to be called El Capitan, um, which is also a rock face in Yosemite National Park. Um so if you have a Mac with Yosemite, then you've probably seen the desktop images of the place. It's absolutely stunning. And being there is a bit like being inside your own Apple Mac, but obviously much, much better than that, because nothing can compare with actually seeing it with your own eyes and, um, and smelling the smells and hearing the sounds and just being part of the general atmosphere of being there. So we drove the uh, muscle car that we were driving, that I was driving. We drove the chevy camaro out of los angeles and then through the back end of the hollywood hills and there they have some very handsome countryside with uh with um a highway which is great for driving uh, i mean in la it's it's not really that great for driving because it's just traffic jams all the time and you're just inching forwards and if you're driving yeah i know should have brought a mustang someone is saying i know that so uh, oh hi that 's uh Roman from Switzerland, yeah I should have brought I should have got a Mustang. Tell me about it um sorry that i 'm just talking to someone on on periscope anyway um uh, so in l a of course you 're just creeping through traffic all the time, lots of traffic jams, which can be a bit annoying when you 're in a big, powerful car because the car wants to it wants to go it wants to leap forwards, as i said in in a previous episode. Um, but then driving to Yosemite was the first time that I'd really sort of taken the car out on a on a proper open highway. Um, so after those hills, the, the land does become a bit boring between Los Angeles and Yosemite. There's a big stretch of a few hours in the middle, which is just boring, flat farmland. But the driving is fun. It, the driving was fun in this Camaro, which really comes into its own on the open highway. Um, and I, I realised... Um, While I was driving to Yosemite, I realized that I'd hardly put my foot down for the whole time. In fact, most of the driving in LA um, has just been slow cruising or edging forwards in traffic. So at that point, On the open highway, I decide to floor the Camaro with some space ahead, and it reveals masses of hidden power, roaring and leaping forwards with yet more revs all the time. It seems that they have about nine gears these cars, and each single gear is designed to go like that. It's completely uh, incredible. Um, So. Yeah, the whole the whole time in LA, I'd just sort of been pushing the accelerator a little bit down, and this was the first chance I had to actually push the accelerator to the floor. In a normal car, if you know, if you're driving up a hill, you you have to push the accelerator to the floor in order to kind of you know get up the hill comfortably. In this thing, uh, I just touch the accelerator and it deals with hills and everything fine. And as I said, open highway, put my foot down, and we were thrown back into our seats. We were already going about seventy miles an hour when I put the foot down and we were thrown back into our seats and it seemed to move between about three gears and suddenly leapt forwards at I mean, I don't know what kind of revs it's got and, you know, what kind of level of torque it has and things like that. But anyway, uh that was exciting and fun. Um so um so the Camaro just ate up all the highway, and we eventually arrived in a town called Fresno after about four hours of driving. Now Fresno, um, um, Fresno, in my experience, is just mall land. Just shopping malls everywhere. I don't know if it's just that we missed the main part of Fresno, but according to the map that we were using, we did drive through the center of it. Um, and um, so Fresno seemed to be just mall land, just mall, shopping mall after shopping mall after shopping mall. Just seems to be one giant shopping mall. So maybe we were in the commercial districts and there's just an open mall after open mall. But anyway, we decided to pick one that had a Whole Foods supermarket and um, we got some sushi. Um, now, we love whole foods i don 't know if you have Whole Foods in, in where you are, but Whole Foods is like a big um, it 's a huge sort of healthy food supermarket and they have lots of different types of healthy food um, and they do there 's a big salad bar and they also serve sushi in, in whole foods as well it 's a really great place so Whole Foods is like Mecca to us um, it 's like a place that we go on a pilgrimage to whenever we can. Um, London has a few Whole Foods. Paris has none at this point. I wonder if uh, there are Whole Foods supermarkets in your countries. So what's so great about Whole Foods? Well, they're normal in the USA. um, And I've I've just mentioned that they're full of really good, you know, uh, healthy food. And they're massive. And they have a really wide selection and loads of good stuff. Um, This Whole Foods that we went to in Fresno was not so good. And the sushi that we ate there was not that great maybe because of our expectations were too high because, you know, after driving for four hours, it's like, we've got to get to Whole Foods. And then we got there and and the the food was not that good. Also, it was absolutely freezing inside this Whole Foods. And um, in fact, that's something that we noticed a lot in the States is that indoors, it's freezing cold because of the air conditioning. So outside, it can be boiling hot and indoors, absolutely freezing. So, you know, we would be sort of rubbing rubbing our arms trying to keep warm wrapping ourselves up in as many layers of clothing as possible just to try and keep warm in these places because of the aggressive air conditioning it's really odd normally here um, in Europe normally it's it, you know in the summer it's hot inside and it's cooler outside and you go outside to get some air and to to you know get a breeze and so on um, in the states it's the opposite it's freezing cold inside boiling hot outside Yeah, uh, just a difference. So we wandered around Mall Land in Fresno looking for supplies. And then we drove to Yosemite in the mid to late afternoon. It took a couple of hours. The landscape got more and more interesting as we climbed up through the winding highway. And at this point, there was some really wonderful driving as we kind of climbed up through these these curved roads as the, the landscape picked up and it started... We, we kind of entered the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, and the, the 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 kind of plant life around us changed, and the trees started to change, and it was mainly at that point kind of. Um, 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 what do you call them, pine trees and so on. Uh, and you can smell the pine trees, you know, so we drove with the windows open and the sun on our faces through these trees. Really nice. And then eventually we got to the Yosemite and we started to glimpse views of these stunning granite formations. Basically, in order to get into Yosemite National Park, you have to drive up, up, up and up and up and then over the sort of over the top, as it were, and then back down into one of the valleys. Um, so once we got into the valley, you started to see glimpses of these amazing granite rock formations. But we kept going uh, because we had to get to our our campsite. And at one point, we went into a tunnel. And then on the other side of the tunnel, there's this incredible view. And in fact, that's a a fairly well-known spot. It's called Tunnel View, one of the best places to view um, you know, the whole valley. So, we drove through the tunnel, and then suddenly, on the other side, this incredible valley view opened out on the left-hand side, and it was basically my Mac desktop. You know, it was just like just like being inside your own Mac desktop. Imagine the biggest Apple Mac display that you can think of. That's what it was like, you know, super high definition, and in 3D as well. We were actually there. Um, so, from the, inside this Camaro, though, you couldn't—you could hardly see anything. We had to stop, and we actually had to—we had to come back to that spot later on. But at that moment, we couldn't really see anything because windows, the windows—the visibility out of the Camaro is so bad that it was like really hard to actually see anything. Um, and no, we didn't have an open top car, which was a, a great pity, but never mind. Um, so uh, after about an hour of driving. In Yosemite Park, and we're in this sort of a bit of a daze. We eventually arrived at our campsite. So this campsite, it was called uh, the Housekeeping Camp, and uh, it's a really great place, really good location, and it's near the river. And there's a sandy area next to the river, which is a bit like a beach, and it's surrounded by pine trees. And you can see views of Yosemite Falls in the distance. It's great. It's very busy. There's loads of people there, and it can be a bit noisy. But there's a good atmosphere in this campsite. Um, to let me describe the tents to you, um, so they weren 't like normal tents that are made of canvas or whatever. in fact, they were sort of partially solid constructions, so you had a concrete back wall, two concrete side walls, and a concrete floor, and then on top a sort of canvas roof, and then canvas curtains um, for the other, the other wall, the fourth wall. Okay. So imagine concrete back, concrete sides with a can, with canvas curtains to get in and out of the tent. Um, very, very, very simple, very basic, a bit like an army camp or something like that. Okay. So that's where we stayed very basic stuff, just a simple bed, um, and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, nice place, friendly atmosphere. Our tent is situated pretty well. Um, one thing we noticed um, one thing we noticed is that um, uh, there are lots of regulations about bears okay lots of regulations about bears because this is bear country Yosemite national park. The park is full of black bears. Um, and they're all around the park, okay. And uh, the thing is, the the bears come out at night and they go on missions into the valley to get food. And obviously, the valley—that's where all the people are. They're not grizzly bears; they're actually black bears. There, there are no grizzly bears in Yosemite National Park anymore. They used to be, but they're all killed, which is a, which is a bit sad because grizzly bears are much more dangerous than black bears. Grizzly bears tend to be more aggressive and more defensive and much more problematic for people. There are grizzlies in um, Yellowstone National Park and other parts of the states, but not in Yosemite. So the only bears they have in Yosemite are black bears, which are not as big as grizzlies and admittedly less aggressive, but still they are bears. And, you know, they're big and strong and they've got big claws and, you know, they're potentially dangerous creatures. Certainly, you don't want to come face to face with a bear at close quarters, um, even if it's a black bear. So, anyway, let me give you some information about black bears in Yosemite National Park. So... um, uh, so apparently, uh, they have over two times the smell of a bloodhound. So you know the way uh, bloodhounds are these dogs that the police or detectives use as a way of um, searching for evidence and stuff. And they've got like super s- brilliant sense of smell. Well, apparently black bears have double the smell, the sense of smell of a bloodhound. They're very intelligent and uh, they are more curious and more confident than dogs and they have huge claws and they have padded hairy feet, which make them silent when they're walking. So you mustn't keep any food or any scented products in your car or in your tent. And that's like a really strict rule in the whole park, including this camp. You're not allowed to have any food or anything that smells. So scented products, that includes things like soap, toothpaste, shampoo, anything that smells at all. All of those things have to be put inside um a bare box. So everything has to be put in bare boxes, which are very sturdy, made of solid, tough metal, and they're bolted to the ground. And they've got like these very strong, secure um, latches on the front of them. Okay. Um, so um, yeah, there you go. So apparently, even if you leave food out, if you're cooking and you just leave food on the table, in your in next to your tent while you're cooking and you turn your back if you're not right next to the food a bear might appear and take the food away from you because if you're not right next to it then the bear basically decides that it's not your food anymore and, and it's, their, it's their food. So, you know, they will come and take your food. So it has to be kept in, the, in these metal boxes at all times. A bit like the way that you would keep food in the fridge. If you take, you know, um, you know, the milk out of the fridge, you put the milk back in the fridge if you're not using it. Same kind of concept, okay? Um, apparently, if you leave food out, they can appear and start feeding. Apparently, at night, all the black bears in the valley head down Into the valley under the cover of darkness, which is a little bit scary when you're sleeping in a tent in the valley, when you realize that there are bears all around, you know. Um, Now, naturally, it's pretty exciting to be sleeping in a basic hut with just a curtain separating us in a bed and the bears, which I imagine to be wandering around our tents all night. Now, in fact, I don't have to imagine what that's like because that night, the first night, a bear decided to have a go at the bear box just outside our tent. So I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard uh, a bear attempting to open the box before moving on to try another one and then another box. And later on, I heard two people outside my tent walking past talking about the bear that they'd just seen. So imagine that, right? Middle of the night, lying there in bed, um, after, uh, reading all this information about bears and so on, and I suddenly heard this sound, and it's like just a few feet away, and the only thing separating me from this noise is this canvas curtain, and, um, yeah, it was a, it was definitely a bear, it was a black bear trying to get into the box just outside our tent, And I was lying there going, oh, God, oh, God, what's going to happen? Because I was thinking, what's going to happen is the bear is not going to be able to get into the box. But he's going, he's still so hungry that he's going to try and investigate. And both my wife and me were wearing around our wrists these mosquito repellent bracelets. These are bracelets that go around your wrist and they make a smell to get rid of the mosquitoes. And this was really smelly. And I'd forgotten to take it off. Um, and then I, when I, when I was lying there in bed and there was a bear just a few feet away outside the tent, I was thinking, oh God, oh God, I hope he doesn't come in to smell this. Because if you can imagine how smelly it was to him, um, you know, they've got double the sense of smell of a bloodhound. So it must've been really strong to him. Um, so I was convinced that the bear was going to try and come in the tent in order to try and have a look at, Uh, what the smell was, at least. You know, they're pretty confident, these bears. They just, oh, what's that smell? Let's go and have a look. So, I was lying there thinking, any second now, this bear is going to try and poke his head through the the curtains. So, I was naturally a little bit nervous. Uh, Nothing happened, thank goodness. The bear moved on and tried to get into another box. I heard him move around. I heard different boxes in the distance. I heard him scratching and clawing at them. So, that was an interesting moment. (laughs) Um, So, uh, apparently if you come across uh, a bear, a black bear, um, if you actually meet one, um, what you're supposed to do is you're, you're supposed to shout at it angrily in order to try and scare it away. So you're supposed to shout at it. So what what should you say to a bear? What should you shout at, at a bear if you meet one? What is the appropriate thing to say to a bear in order to scare it away? This is what I was wondering. So, um, you know, I wouldn't want to be too rude. But at the same time, I think it would be necessary to talk to the bear in rather a strong way, you know, in rather strong terms. I don't, I suppose indirect language wouldn't work. Now, you know, I'm British, so it's natural for me to be slightly indirect and tentative in that kind of situation. It's not necessarily my first instinct to um, shout rude things at a bear. You know, I want to be more reasonable than that. So I was lying there thinking, what am I going to say if a bear does come up to me? Uh, I suppose you have to be direct and clear and yet reasonable with the bear. Um, I'm joking, of course. I think that probably if I did meet a bear, I would just scream at it and I would swear and I would say any old nonsense just to try and get, get rid of it. (laughs) Um, but I imagine I imagine some of you would be a little bit more cool about your bear encounter. But not me. I would freak out, I think. Because um, I'm from the UK, you see. And, and the thing is that we killed all our bears in, in the UK. It's very sad. But we killed all our bears years ago. We made them fight with dogs and other cruel things. It was terrible. So I imagine that any bear meeting me as an Englishman and hearing my London accent wouldn't be that friendly. You know? So I don't think there would be any need to be cool. I, would, I think that freaking out and panicking and trying my best to scare the bear away is probably the order of the day. Um, so, um, yeah, imagine what, what would that be like? Um, sorry to bother you, bear, but uh, I hope you wouldn't mind. I've, again, I'd just like to apologise for all the things my ancestors did to you. But um, would you consider uh, running away? That's not going to work. <sighs> it's going to take your face off you need you need a, a more um confident approach than that i think so um the place that the camp has a lovely summer camp hippie boy scout feel to it um yeah i wanted to talk more about what you should say to a bear let's honest. let's let's think about that a little bit so it would probably be something like uh actually um i heard someone tell me that that you should say hey bear hey bear like that with an american accent um but as an english person oh yeah i'd probably say i don't know i don't know what i would say um anyway um so it's a lovely place nice hippie feeling sort of to it kind of chilled out vibe to it it's a bit crowded lots of kids um it would be nice to have the place to ourselves but of course that's impossible dinner at the yosemite lodge down the road nice modest canteen food um uh, we bought some tourist stuff, like a cap and some playing cards and things, and then we went to bed after making sure all the food and all the smelly stuff was in the reinforced box. And then we drew the canvas curtains. Uh, the canvas curtains were definitely not reinforced, and we t- I tied them with a very good knot. I don't know if that was going to make a difference, but I decided that we'd use like a really strong knot um, to make sure that the the curtains of the tent would be secure. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was thinking, of course, the bears won't be interested in us. Uh, but apparently they are very curious. So yeah, I've already said this, but I'm just reading from my notes. We're wearing mosquito repellent coil things and they're quite interesting and smelly. Maybe a bear will find it interesting. Maybe a bear will come into the tent and say, oh, hello, what's that on your wrist? I don't know what the equivalent, the bear equivalent of what's that on your wrist would be. Maybe it would be like, let me poke my my head in your tent and bite your arm off. That's how a bear speaks, by the way. Um, let me let me bite your arm off or just maul you a bit. Because that's what bears do, isn't it? That's what dangerous animals do. They maul you. Yeah, that's the word that we always use, to maul. If you ever read a, a story in the newspaper about, uh, you know, um, a, someone who got attacked by an animal in the zoo or some kind of big cat attack, they always get mauled by the animal, to maul someone anyway. So, maybe that's what it was. So anyway, we slept well in the open air, despite all of these thoughts about bears in, in my mind. Um, we we had, I had to go to the loo in the night, which was quite a scary moment. So, you know, I, I needed the toilet. So, um, I decided that I would go for it. So I kind of, you know, got out of the bed and, and put my flip flops on and everything. And I poked my head out of the, out of the curtains. Um, and you know, I thought, right, come on let's not muck around. So I went outside. Every every step, I was imagining a bear to just appear at any moment. I went into the little toilet cubicle and I had a look first to make sure there was no bear in there. You know, I thought that for some reason there would be bears in the toilet. I don't know what they would be doing, just sort of hanging out in the toilet, doing a poo or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, so I did my business and of course I had to look over the door uh, before leaving the cubicle, just to make sure that there wasn't a huge bear waiting for me. But everything was fine. So it was all it was all okay in the end. Um, what time are we on? It's 48 minutes on the podcast and much longer on the Periscope. I think... Okay, I'm going to pause the podcast for a second and talk to the Periscope people. Um, okay. So the next day, uh, we woke up and had uh, breakfast in the canteen in the park. Um, and then... For that day, we decided to stay on the floor of the valley and we rented bicycles. So we rode around on bicycles and it was a very nice um, and uh, comfortable way to enjoy spending time um, in yosemite park to get used to the environment and just to take it easy a little bit so we we rode around on bikes and there's it, there's a very nice very convenient bike uh, cycle path that takes you all the way all the way around the valley and you get views of the different um, uh, granite rock formations and things and you you get to spend time in some of the meadows there and you can Uh, spend time relaxing by the river and dip your feet into the water and it's really really nice Um, and it's um, we wanted actually to to hike up um, to the top of one of those places but um, apparently there was a fire up there uh, in fact, there are fires all around California, uh, but there was certainly a fire in the sort of higher areas of, uh, the mountains in Yosemite. Um, so we couldn't hike up there. Uh, but it did give me the desire to climb. Looking at all that granite it really gave me the desire to climb because, you know, I used to, um, uh, I used to, um, be a rock climber and so that kind of gave me the desire to climb. Um, anyway, um, the bikes were a little bit awkward, very big beach cruiser type things uh mountain bikes would have been better still it's very peaceful and incredibly fresh the The air is beautiful there uh sunshine and cycling are quite tiring, so in the end, we d- ended up chilling out by the river and um okay so um, okay, I've actually stopped doing the periscope thing now. I paused the recording just a moment ago and uh, did a bit more talking on Periscope. What I, I what I found in, in this episode was that um, it's not exactly perfect doing a live stream and a podcast at the same time because what the Periscope people want is for me to talk to them and respond to their questions. But what I think is best for the podcast is that I speak to you and only you. You see what I mean? So doing two things at the same time is not actually uh as as straightforward as you might imagine um but um so i've pa- i've paused the, the i peri- have pa- i've stopped the periscope uh but if you go to the page for this episode you'll find uh you should find youtube uploads of those periscope videos and you can see all of the other stuff so this i've been talking on the podcast for about fifty minutes or something, but the periscope has about something like an hour and forty minutes. Um, so you'll find way more extra content there uh, if you want to have a look at that. So anyway, I'm now going to carry on by you know uh, talking. I'm going to keep talking about uh, Yosemite now. So um, so we had a lovely day on the the, the valley floor, drive, uh, riding around on mountain bikes, chilling out by the river, and so on. But I I was a little bit worried about the next day because I knew that I uh, I wanted us to go for a, a big long hike up in the mountains and i thought what can we do that's fun and that takes advantage of the proper rugged landscape without it being too challenging in the end it was it was all right and we came up with a good plan but anyway i was thinking about that that night um i drove us back up to tunnel point you know that place with the amazing view um, I drove us back up to there to look at the sunset, and we ended up staying and looking up at the stars and It was amazing because after the sun went down, uh, there was a beautiful view of the of the stars, so we lay on our backs, and it was immensely beautiful as there there's there's hardly any light pollution in the park, so the stars were all revealed uh, to us in their glory, and there were millions and millions of tiny points of light. Um, And as you may know, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is so rich, there are so many stars, that when you look at it um, on a good night, it appears to be like a a, a big mist. It looks like a mist across the sky. But in fact, it's just a dense collection of many, many millions of stars. Um, And we saw constellations like Orion's Belt and The Plough. And driving back through the valley, my wife fell asleep in the passenger seat, and I decided to stop the car again in order to lie down on the bonnet of the car and look up at the stars a little bit more. So I did that. I stopped the car in a parking spot and I got out while my wife was sleeping and I lay down on the the big bonnet of the car to look up at the stars because it was so amazing. But suddenly I got really freaked out by the total darkness around me Um, because I was just lying there and there was a big field on my right and a big field on my left meadows and then forest. And I was lying there looking at the stars. And then I suddenly became aware that all around me was total darkness. And I was thinking, this valley is full of bears. So I got freaked out by the bears again. So I didn't last very long uh, lying there on the on the car. And I decided to get back in the car and drive, drove back to the, um, the campsite. And we slept very well that night. Even though I did hear a few more bear sounds um and um we we were we slept well ready for a pretty early start uh, the next morning so okay let me fi- let me finish the bit about yosemite and then that will be the end of this episode so the next day we had a very early start we had a huge breakfast to get ready for our our big hike uh because um we planned to go on a big walk um around um the 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 top of of the the valley so uh, around the periphery of um of the valley basically so we took a coach trip up to a place called granite point which is um a spot on the edge at the top overlooking the valley with amazing views and the driver on the journey was really amusing um and he said that he'd been driving Uh, buses in yosemite valley for 26 years um and so he and while he was driving us he also gave us a commentary um through his microphone and it was broadcast through the speakers um and uh, 26 years he'd been doing it, and he definitely had perfected his routine because his commentary was full of jokes and full of dry humour, as well as lots of really interesting facts like the story of Yosemite National Park. And the story of the park is, is basically that it was at one point populated by um, a, a pretty tough tribe of Native Americans who um, had learned how to hunt grizzly bears so these were the, like the only guys who were able to actually live within the park um, and that of course eventually settlers from the east had come in and made contact with the Native Americans and it was just basically a story of how uh you know some some explorers had discovered the place but, um and sort of um, uh, explored it, including someone called John Muir who's a well known name in that area um, and that ultimately, the Native American people who lived there had been sort of driven out of the place. It was another sort of slightly sad story about Native Americans, um, but we. But his his speech was really funny and really entertaining. We um, got to Granite Point um, and sort of walk a little bit up to to where you get this amazing view. It's a it's a bit like being. Uh, at the perfect place to survey that end of the valley it's incredible panoramic views all around on both sides incredible photograph opportunities and then we started our hike and the the idea of the hike was to do to walk around from granite point all the way around one end of the valley across you know across the tops of all of the let, let's say that across the tops of the mountains looking down into the valley on our left as we went around, walking over some waterfalls, and then eventually uh, walking back down into the valley, back down to the valley floor. Um, and the the idea is that it would take about six hours in total. We we'd packed lunches, we packed plenty of water and snacks and things. We were well prepared. We had flashlights and stuff in case there was a problem. So we were, you know, pretty well prepared. Um, although although um, I still had some concern over over how prepared we were. Um, even though we were well prepared, I was still a little bit worried about some things. For example, our shoes. Our shoes were not climbing shoes. We were basically wearing trainers. Um, but to be honest, I think some of that stuff about climbing shoes is a little bit unnecessary. I think some of it's marketing. You know those shoes that you're supposed to wear when you, when you go trekking? Like, you know, um, specially designed shoes with big grips on them and big Ankle supports and stuff. We weren't wearing those sorts of shoes, um, but I am a little bit sceptical about how necessary those things are. And in fact, later on, we met a ranger. This is a like an expert who um, is responsible for safety and so on in the park, and he agreed with me. He said, "I, I think that the shoes you're wearing are fine." Anyway, um, um, so our shoes, nevertheless, didn't have ankle protection, which was a bit worrying because we were going to do eight miles of hike. Uh, mostly downhill with some uphill bits and some tricky steps. And it was supposed to take four to six hours. So we, d- we did the first three to four miles without any problem at all, with amazing, stunning views. I mean, it's like being up in the heavens, looking down upon the valley. Incredible. Um, and it was all fine, except at one point when my wife, as we were walking, she just stepped on a rock and she rolled her heel very slightly to roll your heel. Um, so as she was walking, she stepped on a small rock, and her heel flexed a little bit to the right, and, and her foot slipped slightly. And I worried for a moment if she'd sprained it. But in fact, she said that she was fine, and we carried on, all right? Um, so she sort of slightly sprained her ankle, but apparently it was fine. Um, And we carried on and we had, you know, more amazing views. Um, At one point, we stopped at a place called Nevada Falls, which is this extremely long waterfall. Um, And at the top, there's like, you know, a river area with cool water and you can sit there. So we stopped at Nevada Falls and we dipped our feet in the pools of cold water and we chilled out and we ate our sandwiches for lunch. It It was great. But when it was time to leave, my wife's ankle had completely ceased up it, it, it had, my wife's ankle had completely seized up. It had seized up, meaning it had gone all stiff and it wasn't flexible and it was very painful to walk on. And it was a bit worrying because we faced another five miles of downhill trekking. Um And um, so it, sh- you know, it should have taken a couple of hours normally, but took us about half an hour to, to do just about what half a mile, and she was holding my hand the whole time and using me a crutch, and she said it was very painful, so eventually we had to stop, and we were stuck okay we were stuck and, and um, this is actually quite a worrying moment luckily we're in the United States and we're in Yosemite National Park and there are loads of people and of course they're all really friendly. So lots of people actually stopped because my wife was sitting down, you know, it was clear that there was a bit of a problem and lots of people stopped to ask if we were okay and people were amazingly nice. Two women called Jenny and Susan uh stopped and apparently they had just done a training course in safety and first aid and uh so they helped us out. Can I just mention, a couple of episodes ago, I talked about the grammar of of describing narratives and how sometimes people slip into the present tense. Well, all the notes that I've written for this are all in the present tense. So you know what I'm going to do? Instead of having to go through all the notes and rewrite them, I'm going to uh read it as I'm going to say it as they're written in the present tense so Jenny and Susan stop to help us and apparently they've just done a training course uh in safety and first aid so they take our situation seriously and they give us water and food and then they call search and rescue so they actually cuz you know I had been thinking maybe her ankle's just cold and it's going to warm up and it's going to be okay but Jenny and Susan had no um, hesitations about cause, calling the Search and Rescue, which is basically like the emergency services of Yosemite National Park. Um, so so they called, they called Search and Rescue for us. And I, at that point, feel pretty bad for not having done this early earlier. Anyway, Search and Rescue take a full description over the telephone of the injury, and they say that they've sent a ranger to come and meet us. So suddenly, we're in a kind of emergency rescue situation on the side of a mountain uh, with the authorities involved. My wife, in particular, is gutted she's really disappointed and she's really embarrassed as well because she doesn't want to cause a big fuss you know but ultimately it's necessary because she can't walk down the mountain like this her ankle is in a lot of pain and she can't put any weight on it and it's dangerous to try and hop down the whole mountain it's just really dangerous so yeah search and rescue are coming they tell us not to move so we wait for about an hour there on the on the uh on the path and then eventually the ranger arrives. Apparently he was already on the trail, um, and um, but he, you know, he made good time. He walked really fast to come and get to us. So now I've already bound my leg, my wife's leg, in a bandage. So uh, Jenny and Susan gave me a bandage, and I've wrapped my wife's ankle up in this bandage, not too tightly, but enough to sort of give it a bit of support. The ranger has brought crutches. You know, these are these like metal or wooden things that you use if you've got a bad leg and it allows you to walk. So the crutches can go under your armpits and you hold them with your hands and they're like long metal or wooden supports and you can use them to help you walk. The weight goes on the crutches and then you can hop on one foot. Crutches. So the ranger has crutches and also more supplies of food and water. And also um, he has material... To give the foot support with a splint, so he kind of prepares the foot properly with a proper splint and support and more bandages and so on to give it support. So suddenly we're in an emergency rescue situation. What happened? What happened to our uh, our hike on the you know uh, on the mountains? no search and rescue now according to him the plan is that we should climb back up to the waterfall and then find another way down uh and this is because um, the, the the way that we're going involves too many big, dangerous steps. And so we have to go back up and then find a, uh, an easier yet longer route. And, I, and we realise that this is going to take us hours and hours of slow and painful movement for my wife. She's already really pissed off and sorry, and so am I. Um, nevertheless, we try to make the best of it. And I'm particularly impressed by my wife, who is determined... To get down the mountain without making a fuss and without complaining, so we we walk back the way we've come up, up to the waterfall again, and it's really slow going. My poor wife has to struggle with the crutches, or she's she's using one crutch and holding onto my shoulder as I as I give her support. It's very slow, um, and um, what would normally have been a two to three hour trek looks set to take about five to six hours. That's a very long time for my wife to hobble along a rocky trail up and downhill on crutches with one ankle in pain and unable to take her weight. But she's brave and determined. Every time Josh or I ask if she wants to take a break, she goes, no <laughs> Well, not quite as strong as that. She goes, no, or non. In fact, in French, meaning, no, I don't want to take a break. Let's keep going. She's determined to get down the trail to the bottom as quickly as possible. So the trail is, um, well, sometimes it's like dirt, sometimes it's dirt with some rocks in it, and sometimes it's just rocks, like loads of different complex granite rocks, and it's difficult for her to find a place to put her crutches. The trail basically goes down one side of the valley, and there are amazing views still of some of the rock formations. There were peregrine falcons. These are uh, uh, beautiful birds of prey nesting on the rocks above us. Uh, Peregrine falcons are amazing because they're the, the, uh, the fastest animals on earth. And these are those birds that will fly really high in the sky, and then they form themselves into like the, you know, the shape of a bullet and fly down at incredible speeds in order to catch their prey, their other birds that they want to catch. So we have peregrine falcons nesting on the rocks above us, and I see them, you know, taking off and flying out into the valley. Amazing. Um, we talked to Josh the um the ranger who's come to help us. And he tells us various things. In fact, we spend, you know, the rest of the day, basically, with Josh going slowly down the mountain. Um, and so he tells us lots and lots of things about the park, and including about the work that he does as a a ranger and one of the crew who does search and rescue operations. Apparently, in Yosemite National Park, there are about five fatalities from accidents every year. It's actually... Um, Quite dramatic. Now, five deaths or five fatalities a year sounds like quite a lot, as if this is a really dangerous place. But when you consider that about five million people visit the park every year, it's only about one in a million who die. So in fact, the ratio is not that much. Imagine London, for example, with its 7 million residents. How many deaths are there in London per year? Well, there are a lot more than there are in Yosemite National Park. But still, it's, it's still quite surprising that that many people don't make it out of the park alive. Um, so, nevertheless, um, yes, there have been some pretty gruesome accidents, that, and Josh tells us about some of them. And these are usually the result of stupid tourists who have no sense of safety or no respect for the nature of the park. And one thing we can all learn from this is that um, even when you're in what feels like quite a a well-maintained national park, it's still really important to respect nature and respect the environment you're in and take care of yourself. Um, Apparently, one of the most common forms of death is by accident, is from people falling over the waterfalls and falling hundreds of feet into their death on the rocks below. And often this is the result of them trying to take the best photo. Many of the, many of these photos are selfies. So if you imagine someone getting to, to Nevada Falls and wanting to take that perfect selfie where it's them with the view behind them, and they inch closer and closer to the edge, desperately trying to get the selfie with their selfie stick and so on. And they care more about the selfie than they care about their footing on the cliff. And apparently people every year fall off the edge. So, you know, just remember, you've still got to be careful. Um, so apparently what happens is that people even jump around on these huge boulders at the edge of the waterfalls with their cameras and their selfie sticks, edging forwards, trying to get the perfect photo or selfie. And they edge forward a little too far and suddenly they're over the edge. And what happens when a tourist falls off one of the highest waterfalls in the world and lands on granite rocks? Well, apparently, the rangers have a fairly gruesome nickname for this, and they've nicknamed it the human water balloon. Can you imagine what that looks like to the other trekkers or tourists who happen to witness it happening? Imagine this beautiful, serene, natural scene and suddenly witnessing some horrendous accident Well, apparently it happens all the time. Josh tells us other tales of tourists who are unprepared for the wilderness of Yosemite, even though there are numerous warnings written all over the park. For example, he tells us about people who attempt to scale the Half Dome. So the Half Dome is one of the most recognisable uh, granite um, uh, mountain ranges or it's a huge dome, a granite dome of thousands of feet above the valley floor with a sheer vertical drop on one side. It takes at least 12 hours to climb up it and most people do this over several days. It's a proper climb for experienced people and it ends with a long ascent up the dome at a 45 degree angle. This is where you have to climb up the granite at a 45 degree angle and in order to get up there you have to hold on to steel cables which have been bolted into the rock and which use crude wooden blocks also bolted into the granite this is a serious climb but lots of people come and they do it because it's such a recognizable thing so they think well we better go up the half dome but it's not as simple as that and it's it's actually very dangerous if you're not prepared some people lose their grip and down they go. Other people lose their cool, and they panic um, with the same result. Down they go, and they fall all the way down to the bottom. The search and rescue rangers are called up to the mountains every day. Sometimes it's necessary to do helicopter rescues. Um, According to Josh, this year a woman fell from the Half Dome, but she didn't fall to her death Instead, luckily for her, her shirt, as she was falling down the rock face, her shirt got caught on a sharp piece of rock and she hung there, hung above the chasm of the valley. She hung there for two hours before being rescued. Can you imagine hanging off the, the, the face of the half dome with, you know, uh, a, a um, uh, definitely a fatal drop below you, only being held in place by your shirt, which is caught on a rock. Imagine how frightening that would be. Earlier that day, the day that Josh met us, earlier that day, Josh had to rescue a guy who'd fallen out of a tree. Apparently, he was climbing the tree, messing around, and he fell out and landed badly on a rock. And his ribs broke and pierced his lungs, which is a serious, serious accident. Josh thinks that the guy probably didn't survive, in fact. But this does put things in perspective for us for a moment, um, still, the crutches and the assisted descent are definitely necessary, and we count our lucky stars that it's not even worse. Josh tells us that we're all that we're well prepared with water, food, and a torch. Uh, yesterday, he rescued a Chinese couple who had tried to climb the half dome without knowing what they were doing, and it 's at least a 12 hour climb, as I said, often more, and they'd started after lunch which is far too late to begin that climb. And they were quite high up, coming back down when they realised that they would never get to the bottom before sunset. And then they would be stranded in total darkness on the trail, which is not fun. It's not fun spending a night out there without any food or shelter or light as well, especially when you know that there are bears around and even nine foot long mountain lions up there too, although they are rare. So Josh heard this couple screaming for help on the trail and then he came and assisted them all the way to the bottom. Again, five million people enter the park every year. Not all of them know what they're doing. Um... We continue to make very slow progress down the trail, and my wife is in a lot of discomfort, but mainly she's frustrated at not being able to go faster. Each step for her is like a mini challenge because of the crutches. She has to place them very carefully and then place her foot carefully too, making sure she doesn't have to put her weight on the bad ankle. On the plus side, we get to walk with a ranger and we get the sunset on the trail with magnificent views of the half dome and other domes in the valley. Again, this all seems so familiar to me because of a computer game. This time it's a game called Red Dead Redemption, which is set over a hundred years ago. And you're in that game, you're basically a cowboy gunslinger in the Wild West. And the landscape is very faithfully reproduced in the game. And there is in fact a mountainous area with bears, which is very similar to the landscape of Yosemite. So I do get that sense of deja vu again. But the main thing, is that my my wife is having a tough, a tough time, even though she's looking on the bright side. Um, one thing that's a bit funny is all of the reactions of people um, coming up the mountain as we go down. So there are some people walking up the trail as we go down, and they all say sort of certain stupid things. And Josh finds this very funny too, because apparently it happens all the time. So for example, my wife is hobbling down on crutches with a th- you know this thing on her leg this sort of splint thing, you know, giving her leg support. And people are going, "Oh my god, did, did 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 that just happen?" Well, yeah, of course it just happened. We wouldn't have come up here. We wouldn't have come all the way up here with this with an ankle like that in the first place. So yeah, of course it's just happened. I think, you know, when people say, "Oh my god, did that just happen?" what they really mean is is like, "Oh wow, are you all right?" You know, it's just that they they just have to say something because they're so surprised to see it. Apparently, uh, according to Josh, people often say stupid things in that situation, like the guy who fell out of the tree and pierced his lung with his, with his uh, um, rib. Apparently, they had to rescue him with a, a stretcher. A stretcher is the thing that, you know, you see it on, in football matches when a football player is injured, then they have to take him off the field on a stretcher. So it's like a thing that two people have to hold and the person lies down on it and then they can pick you up and, and rescue you. So they had to rescue this guy with a stretcher. So they were carrying him down the mountain on a stretcher. The guy, unfortunately, had pierced his lungs with his ribs and so he was like blood, coughing up blood out of his mouth. It was really horrendous. And apparently one person walked past and said, Oh my God, is this, uh, is this like a training exercise? like yeah sure training exercise with like realistic blood and everything no it's not a training exercise this man is seriously injured so yeah you get some weird s- silly comments and things um and so yeah quite an a- quite an adventure as we continue the day goes the day moves on the st- as and as the sun stretches through the trees into the trail we are basically alone uh, by about 6 pm um and we keep going and it gets to 8pm. We should have been back back in the campsite three hours ago, but we still have a long way to go. And we're walking, it's, it's incredibly quiet and the sun is going down. And in these conditions, I keep expecting to see a bear cross the path in front of us. Everything seems so still and peaceful that I'm sure that at any moment now we're going to come across a bear or something. Um, but we, we don't see any bears. Um, and anyway, the main challenge is to get down the mountains. So never mind about bears and lions. And it's very rocky. And there are lots of steps and boulders and so on. And it just goes on and on forever until eventually we're walking in the total darkness with torches on our heads. Torches. In America, they call them flashlights, but we call them torches in the UK. So we are walking with torches on our heads. And and I even carry my wife for some sections. I carry her on my back for some sections, um, because it's just a chance to go faster. Eventually, after ages and ages, we finally get to the end of the trail uh, at this huge water tank um, in the forest, which the water tank looked like some sort of massive UFO looming out of the darkness. And from there, we're all picked up by a local police officer in his 4x4, this huge American police car, Um, It's giant, this car, with massive tyres. And my wife gets to sit in the front of the cab with the police officer. And between them there, in the cab, there's a gun rack with several massive semi-automatic rifles. I think they were M16s. And a shotgun and a few handguns. So my wife is sitting in the seat next to the police officer with all these guns and weapons in there too. A typical American cop car, I suppose. Uh, So not only is it a tremendous relief to be off the trail and back into civilization again, but we get a ride in what feels like a tank. And the police officer drives us through the forests in the closed area of the park back to where our car is parked at Yosemite Lodge. Amazingly enough, this police officer has been learning French using, what was it he was using? Um, um, Rosetta Stone. Um, So he's been, he'd been learning French using Rosetta Stone. So weirdly enough, this, this cop in the middle of this national park starts speaking to my wife in French, uh, which is kind of a nice, kind of a nice bonus. So the police officer was actually really, really nice. And he dropped us off um, where our park was, was, um, where our car was parked. Um, And uh, so we stop at the police station first and Josh goes in to get us some food because it's 11 o'clock by this time. We started at about 10 a.m. at Granite Point. So we'd been walking all day. We should have got back uh, to our campsite at about 4 or 5 p.m. But because of what happened, we ended up walking all the way until 11 p.m. And we haven't eaten since the sandwiches that we had at the waterfall. So we're absolutely starving and we desperately need energy and stuff. And we need water, especially my wife. And Josh comes out with the from the police station with these two army rations. These are army field rations. These big field packs. Well, they're not that big. They're like the size of what? I don't know. what The size of a lunchbox. He brings these two field packs. And these are army packs for soldiers to eat in the field. And they contain everything for a full meal, including macaroni, cheese, tea, coffee, uh, fruit dessert, bread, salt, pepper, butter, and the whole things that they they heat themselves up without needing fire. So that's kind of cool. And we're both quite impressed by these things. But in the end, we are completely exhausted. So we go straight to bed uh, after I carefully inspect my wife's ankle. Uh, And thankfully, because uh, Josh had really done a good job on protecting it and supporting it and because my wife hadn't put any weight on it during the whole climb she'd managed to avoid putting any weight on it the whole time thankfully it's not too swollen and not too discolored so the the injury's not too bad i mean it could have been worse i know enough about sort of these sorts of injuries that that uh, you know i was able to I was I, I was able to feel quite confident that it was all right. For example, if it's broke if it was broken, well, if it had been broken, we would have definitely known about about it because I think it would have been painful from the from the beginning. But also, when something breaks, usually you get lots of discoloration as well. Also, we didn't hear a sound when it had happened. You know, when she actually did it on the trail, there was no noise. Like sometimes you get the sound of a pop, which means that either there's been a break or a tendon has been badly broken. Um, um, so, and also it's not too swollen. It's a bit swollen, but not too much. And in fact, I think that she escaped, she managed to escape serious in- injury. And I think her, an- uh, you know, at that time, I thought her ankle going to, you know, I thought it's going to be fine as long as she rests it. Um, and so the next 36 hours, I thought, the next 36 hours will be pretty inactive, She's going to have a long sleep, and then we're going to have a fairly long car journey, so she will be able to rest it over the next 36 hours or so. So I was confident it would be okay. Now, at this point, this is one hour and 22 minutes, so it's time for me to stop this episode. Um, But what have I told you about? Basically, I told you about the Church of Scientology and then uh, our experiences in Yosemite National Park. So um, in the next episode, I'm going to do a bit more British and American English, and then we're going to talk about San Francisco – and i will do uh, i will play you the um recording of the interview that I did with uh, AJ Hoag. So you can listen to that one in the next episode. Uh, thank you very much for listening to all the way to the end of this episode, which I actually think is going to be more like an hour and a half. Um, so thanks for listening all the way to the end. You're very, very good people, and I'm sure that it's going to be very beneficial for your English to keep listening like this. Uh, leave your comments on the page. Uh, check out the page for this episode. You'll be able to look at videos um, the the Periscope videos that I did uh, while recording this too. Um, all right, good. That's it then. Speak to you again soon. But for now, time to just say goodbye, bye, 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 bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.